welcome to a very special episode of The Partial Historians. I am Dr. G. And I am Dr. Ren. And with us today is the very amazing, talented, intelligent uh, Liz Smith. Thank you. Easily it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> one of the foremost academics of her generation. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> She is, she is the interesting filling in our sandwich. <laughs> We're actually very excited to have Liz on the program. Um, she's been working on her PhD, which has just been completed. Dr. Pending yeah. is how we were describing this situation. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we're pretty excited. Um, the thing that is the focus of Liz's research is probably um, something that I should not be the best play- person to describe. Perhaps you should be the person to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> Me? Oh. Um, <laughs> it's one of those issues when you have to describe 100,000 words in just a minute. <laughs> I'm going to say it's about fashion. Yeah. And fashion the ancient world. Fashion. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's something that we're interested in because we all like... I, you probably came into this, I suppose, because like all of us in your undergraduate days, you like looking at gender and... What women were up to in the classical world. Yeah, that's definitely true. And Mm. I think that looking at the way women are represented in the ancient world tells us a lot about um, perceptions of women. And it can, to an extent, tell us about their lived experiences. Not not a great deal, unfortunately, because everything that we know about women is, as always, (laughs) described by men. So, but essentially my thesis looked at, well, looks at, it's, it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going anywhere now. It's definitely no, looking at it's things. It's still there. Um, I looked at representations of head coverings, so what we would usually refer to as veils, on statuary evidence. So looking at statues in the round, so portrait statues, and on sepulchral reliefs, so gra- grave monuments. Interesting. And and this is something that people might not necessarily... I mean, on a podcast, obviously, visuals are not a thing that we usually go into in a huge amount of detail. And and women (laughs) women haven't been a big feature of our narrative thus far because, you know, men. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So can you give us a rough idea of, like, what would a Roman woman roughly be wearing? Well, that, that's a very good question, mm. Dr. Rad, because mm. essentially, as we say, all of the source material that describes female clothing from both the Greek and Roman perspective is composed by men. Yeah. And so we have to take what they say with a very large pinch of salt, mm. <laughs> in my opinion. Um, but we can, we can consider things in terms of drapery, and status. Yeah. So your elite ladies would be very well adorned, mm. very fashionable, yeah. um, and often very modestly dressed. Uh, we can we can presume that um, the your average slave or labourer or you know working class woman who goes about her daily life. Well, that's another story indeed, because the representations of even these women are often idealised and. It's very difficult to tell what they would have worn. But we have general garments like the stola Mm. and the pala um, for married citizen Roman women. Um, I take issue with the pala being a 
a garment for married women, but that that's another story. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we have all of these garments and they are described in the ancient sources and when you look at statues and how elite women are represented on those statues, I think another important thing to remember is that the garments would have been coloured. So mm. they would have had all of these different dyes and very reds, purples, even blues, you know, th- those kinds of hues would have been... They would just be walking around in white, white, white. Well, yeah. Get the nappy sand. So I think this is like a really important issue that we have in general terms with the evidence for women in the ancient past is that our written source material doesn't hold up a good mirror for us. And so... Mm. The work that you're doing looking at physical evidence and statuary is a way into thinking about everyday life where we don't have a narrative necessarily, Mm. but we can start to build a visualization of what the past might have looked like for women in a way that's more substantial than what we can get from, say, the written evidence and sometimes even epigraphy. Uh, and I think it's so important to understand what women were wearing, not just because, you know, like, I'm just a girl and I want to know, <laughs> but because when I think about the way that I dress, for example, as opposed to women in the past have dressed, you know, the, the fact that I'm able to wear pants, you know, without it being, you know, like a <laughs> national crisis, um, you know, not just pants, but jeans even, you know, It tells you a lot about the kinds of freedoms that I Mm. have, um, as well as potentially my status and all that kind of stuff. So Mm. I think clothing is something really interesting and important to consider in terms of what their lives would have been like and, Mm. you know, their their position in society, definitely. Yeah, it's very true. And I think the other thing that we have to remember is that even the representations of female clothing in sculpture we're still looking at an idealised portrait. You yes. know, you, you wouldn't represent yourself in the ancient equivalent of jeans in your grave monument for your family that you've spent every last dollar that you had. I know. How, <laughs> how, how good does it make your ass look? Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that you, you pick the thing that's going to make you look nice. Yeah, well, I, um, I must admit, whenever yeah. we look at these sorts of sources with my students, I'm always like, look, it's like Instagram. You don't just, you know, whack on any old yeah, photo and yeah. not put a filter on. Yeah. You know, this is, and this is something that someone's actually working really hard to produce, at, like the carving in stone, not like a selfie that you took in a second. Yes, it so. is <laughs> the very definition of permanent. Yeah. <laughs> so much like, you know, the cloud is permanent because yes. I don't even know how to get there. But yeah. <laughs> but, none of us do. None of us but do. yeah, literally carved in stone. So. so I guess the other thing that I'm really interested in in your topic in particular is that, um, as you know, I've spent a lot of my academic career looking at Rome and Greece in film. Mm. And when you look at women in Rome and Greece on film, they tend to be rather leviciously. Oh, yeah. Sex sells everybody. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there tends to be, you know, quite a lot of cleavage, you know, so maybe some thigh-high splits. (laughs) Uh, You know, the the shoulder is very prominent. (laughs) So I think this might tie in nicely um, because you mentioned the stola and the pala as being Mm. part of features of Roman elite dress for Mm. women. Um, it might be worth um, describing what they would look like on the female body, <laughs> potentially, um, in, in order to counteract no, 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 true, this true, narrative yeah. of the the sort of the, oh, the reveal. Flesh. Flesh. Yeah. Well, if we consider the stola essentially as an undergarment, so your your petticoat. Mm. Um, so you 
The issue with the stola is you can't really see it on statues because it's an undercut. <laughs> <laughs> Hard so. to find, but we think it's there. <laughs> Sometimes it's there. You can see it in a couple of things. She looks like she's wearing layers. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been nippy when you... <laughs> yeah. This is a great autumn look. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the pala is, is much more visible and easy to recognise because it's a shawl or wrap that can be adorned and rearranged in a number of ways. In a number of materials, if you think of it as a kind of scarf that was six meters long by two meters wide, you Whoa. know, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of variation that you can <laughs> have in that. <laughs> yeah, so you could do a lot with that. Yeah. <laughs> Large and heavy, and in the poses that we see in statues. And speaking from personal experience, when you try to recreate those poses, walking around just in one room, incredibly difficult. <laughs> so um, if you were wearing a pala in any kind of everyday sense, you'd probably think of it as much more of just a wrap or something that was draped as opposed to elaborately encircled around the body, covering every inch of available skin that was there. Um, so un you... Unless the, the woman had nothing else to do that day, which is very much a possibility, mm. <laughs> unfortunately. Perhaps it's just for reclining <laughs> gracefully not, while well, waiting not, to You be try sitting in that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> leaning. 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 Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Propping well, yourself up against yeah. a column somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's a as, bit like heels. As you snap at slaves, you got time to lean, you got time to clean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when we think about the, the materials that these fabrics would have been made in so wool or linen or silk these kind of organic uh, linen yeah oh. i know linen is heavy what else it crushes <laughs> oh, there was no ironing yeah <laughs> that's what i mean i'm just like Ugh. yeah but yeah. by the time you you know you do all of that and then you put an elaborate hairstyle on top geez like yeah it would have taken 10 hours just to get ready well it makes a lot of sense really that, that that's what you do that, that's your job but this sounds yeah. like it, it might be more of a conspicuous display of position Oh, certainly. Than, than anything else. Yes, female dress is certainly related with status. This we know. They didn't have an official uniform the same way that men do with the toga and all of their various insignia and these kinds of things. But, but female dress was important. It was recognised and it was something that if you were wearing particular colours or particular styles, surely... We think. Sure, we think. You know, caveat. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite sure. <laughs> but it it definitely communicated to other people that you belonged to a certain position of your society. Which makes sense. I mean, in this kind of a world, um, well, I mean, to be honest, in our world, I, you know, I can't really say it's only something in, in the ancient world, can I? But yeah, conveying who you are and where you are in the society is obviously, you know, important just by looking at someone. You know, because you're not necessarily going to be interacting beyond that. You want to know exactly mm. who they are. Yeah. Mm. Is there a moral dimension to this, do you think? Ooh, that's mm. a good question. So, uh, no. <laughs> Is the answer. <laughs> no, it, it's not the answer. But And some people would certainly disagree with me when I say no. Okay. Um, and that that's fair enough. They're entitled to their <laughs> opinion. <laughs> but in my... I would say sort of learned opinion. Yeah. Um, I don't think that the pallor or head covering garments in general had a huge moral impact or moral... I don't think that they could signify moral status in the same way that actions and familial status could. Mm, interesting. Um, I think that perhaps the representation of the garment is more closely linked when it covers the head with a representation of motherhood. Mm. 
Um, so equating the woman represented as such as a mater familias. But that's not to say that representations of women without head coverings cannot be mothers. So it's really it really depends yeah. on the context. Yeah. yeah, so it's not like you give birth and all of a sudden you have a piece of cloth stuck to your head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that seems unlikely. Yeah, definitely unlikely. Um, but we certainly have cases where like a lot of arguments are made for, say, the dress of Vessel Virgins, which is the only dress that really that I'm familiar with, where it's like it connotes something about their purity and that's part oh, of yeah. the deal that's going on yeah. there and mm. with the vessels it's a totally different ball game like there's religion involved there's all there's all these different things going on which are way more important than just your average married lady going about the street i guess i, I just find it so interesting because as I, as i said in in films these kinds of head coverings are exactly the kind of clothing that is often left out Mm. all together you know well yeah because yeah. it's hard to wear hard to walk in yeah um, and i think and also, also it, it, like obscures the face of the actress potentially obs- well yeah, yeah obscures yeah. the face and and also um hollywood is very scared of um you know islam so yes yeah That's so, true. so getting rid of those <laughs> garments is sometimes um uh, a political choice oh yeah definitely that, yeah that i certainly don't condone yeah um because they were there and um, as we can see, like a lot of the evidence that I looked at in my PhD was actually from the Greek East, mm. and and you can see the prevalence of these garments there. They may not always cover the face, no, in the same way that um, your your more conservative Islamic garments do. Yeah, but they are there, and they're there for different reasons in each individual instance. And I think it's difficult because we can't ask these women why they wore these things. We can't. We can't go and do that, but but in modern day we we can, yeah, that's and true. we should, yeah, um, more and more. So. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us about any particular examples that you found really interesting? I, I know this is an unusual yeah. thing I'm asking you to do on a podcast, but I, <laughs> I assure listeners that if they go to our website, we will have images of the things that uh, the future Dr. Smith is about to tell us. About. Ah, thank you. Yeah, no, I would love to talk about some examples. Um, I I sort of uh, had two in mind that are quite different Mm. um but both representations of women that are dedicated by the woman themselves Mm. so i think that these instances give us much more of an insight into how the woman wants to be seen so i'm presuming that these are from um probably like the roman period from the greek east yeah Yeah. roman period one is actually from italy thank god (laughs) (laughs) um but the other one that i have for you is from macedonia okay so yeah, it's it's Roman period and, and we're looking quite late, so after two twelve. Okay. Yep. So everybody's a citizen, it's all good. Yeah. Um <laughs> all right. So to position our listeners in yeah. terms of like what's going on in our narrative, we're about six hundred years behind. Sorry. We've now No, no. I, I no, this is really exciting. So we've jumped ahead into the Imperial period, but mm. also now we're really solidly in the Imperial oh, period. Most definitely. Big time. Yeah. And um, Roman Empire is huge. Yeah, Roman's Rome's influence is massive, but it's also um, consistently engaging in like a cultural exchange with mm. every area that it's in contact with. Mm, very true. Yeah, and the, and the thing that tends to distinguish Roman women from Greek women is that they seem to have a little bit more autom- autonomy when it comes to, um, you know, managing their own property and yeah. finances, which means that they could actually pay for their own. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, these these two women that I wanted to talk to about today, one is called Epictesis, and there's a really nerdy joke that I have about Epictesis. Oh, Can yeah. I tell it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. So Epictesis, you just just add an H, like just add water, and you have Epicthesis. Oh, 
And we will note that this piece of evidence is in Liz's thesis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> um, yeah, and the second one um, is dedicated, it's a tomb, oh, sorry, not a tomb, a sarcophagus, dedicated by a woman called Aurelia Eutychia. And Eutychia is an interesting sort of um, personal name because um, mm. it means, like, it, in Greek, it translates to I am prosperous or I am fortunate. So it has all of these roots and it's very, very interesting mm. to see what the name could mean. It certainly doesn't sound Latin. So. <laughs> no, no, the, the Aurelia is though. Yeah, so yeah, the Aurelia we, is. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we go yeah. from there. But, yeah. but talking about um, Epictesis first. Yeah. So we, ha- I have a monument that she dedicated to her husband and her children. And unfortunately from the inscription, um, which we'll upload a picture of, I'm sure, um, it seems that Epictesis outlived her entire family. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah. That's so really tables turned, isn't it? It's really sad. <laughs> yeah. um, I feel like this is the lot of women, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In so, many respects. Yeah, so from what I, like, trying to have a more empathetic position with these women represented in these monuments, I think we can see that she was probably a really strong person mm. who went through a lot. And in the monument that she dedicates to her husband and her children and herself... She represents herself along with um, her husband in, like, your average everyday garb. Well, everyday meaning the most idealistic version that we know of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he is a paliatus, I think. Um, And she is dressed in a statue pose called the Large Herculaneum Woman Type which has nothing to do with Herculaneum, which oh. is <laughs> um, All largeness, necessarily. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it, I'm looking at the image. <laughs> the, t- the type just generally refers to the arrangement of the drapery. And if, right. you, if you search large Herculaneum and small Herculaneum women, you'll there's a wealth of material, scholarly material out there on these statues. And mm. the eponymous ones are found in Herculaneum, hence their names. Okay. Like, right. Is yeah. there something specific that distinguishes out the large Herculaneum type, in your opinion? Um, oh well, yes, and it's uh, it's agreed amongst scholars. So the the drapery is held in a triangular fashion across the chest. Um, uh, it's what's referred to as a closed pose. What so, I like to think of Dr. G as the Batman position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Actually. Uh, and the, and women who are represented in the large Herculaneum type are usually represented with the head covered. By the pallor. So the pallor is draped around the shoulders in and various other parts of the body and pulled up over the head to form a veil. Right. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a very like every inch of the skin is covered mm. essentially yeah. in this pose. So in Epictetus's relief, we have her on the right hand side and her husband, who is unnamed, Ooh. importantly. Yes. Wow. Doesn't give him a name, but he but she does say that he is Macedonian. So rather than saying his name, she wants to point out that he's Macedonian. So perhaps that's just a little sort of um, snide comment on Rome's influence in the region, <laughs> saying we are Macedonian. <laughs> that's really interesting. The fact, yeah, because so much of what we understand of the way that Rome operates is about mm. patrilineal lines. Yeah. So a deliberate unnaming of, yes. the, of the husband. Very curious. Oh, we have so many instances where the woman isn't named. You know, just just in sources in general. So yeah, I'm like, I'm quite flabbergasted. This is most of our problem in trying to create any stemmers at all for Roman families is that we're like, well, which woman was it? Uh, They were all called (laughs) Hershia. No. Yeah. Well, there is only one epictesis. No, I lie. Her name's actually pretty common. (laughs) 
was initially translating the inscription for this, I didn't realize that it was a personal name, and for a long time I was looking for the meaning of this word, and then I realized, oh, that's actually should be. Well, just I was gonna say, it doesn't sound like a like a very common name for a woman. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm terrible with languages, everyone will say, but um, yeah, I would not, that would not strike me as a name. Either. Yeah, it didn't yeah. strike me as a name either, yeah. funnily enough. Yeah. But yeah, there are other examples of it, as yeah. you can check in the lexicon of Greek personal names, as I'll I sure eventually that. did. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a very large, yeah. very uh, plain book. <laughs> but very useful for inscriptions. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> But yeah, another note is that she doesn't name her children either in the mm. inscription. I she, feel like that's kind of, you know. Yeah, but yeah. she but the representation says it all. So while her and her husband are dressed in what appears to be mortal clothing, you know, mm. they're not represented as gods or deities or anything. Yeah. Her children are. Huh. So her son is represented as Hercules and he's nude. <laughs> um, and he's carrying a club and a sheepskin. Um, and her daughter is represented in the bathing Aphrodite type, which is very That's creepy. sexy. Yeah. <laughs> Do we know how old these children were when no. they passed? <laughs> okay. Dr. G, I just don't. got a question for you. New logo? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time to update. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I think what we can draw from this particular relief, and coming back to the fact that in this representation, Epictetus has a head covering, is that she's picking idealised forms for mm. each of her family members. She, yeah. wants, she wants her husband to rep- be represented as the largest figure on the monument. His head is bigger than everybody else. His, his stance is large. Everything about him is big. So that's nice. <laughs> I heard he's a Macedonian. <laughs> <laughs> the way it sounds, I know, I get what you're coming out with, like the whole, you know, Roman Empire kind of mm. thing. But to me, it sounds like saying, I married a pool boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the and children then, were just divine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they were, and then they died. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Awkward. Yeah, yeah awkward. Yeah. Um, yeah, so she's. She's got her husband in his perfect form. She's got her children in their deified, perfect forms as she wants them to be remembered. And then you look at how she's represented. She looks elegant. She looks poised. She's She's got all the markers of an elite feminine woman. Mm. And so in this context, you can sort of say that the presence of the head covering garment is a contributor to that fact. Mm. And the fact that Epictetus is also a mother, therefore, it might also be linked with um, signifying that. Absolutely. We, we, that's my guess. Well, look, it would make sense, given what you've been saying. And I know that you've looked at, you know, a huge range of, you know, examples. Yeah, there's a few. Um, yeah, just a few. <laughs> <laughs> um, but given what you've been saying and given what this, what the purpose of this, you know, what, what obviously her children die, like it would yeah. make sense to be celebrating her motherhood or, or putting mm. it at the forefront because, mm. you know, that's what this is all about. Yeah, it's exactly. About her family, you know. it's, a, it's a celebration and I think there's a point to be made in that her her grief must have been, like, unparalleled. Like, yeah. you know, you, you watch people go through these things in modern day and you can only imagine how it would feel. Is it rude to ask... And... If they all died at the same time of the same thing? Well, the inscription does not give us that information, mm-hmm. as okay. um, yeah. as was the issue in most of yeah. the monuments that I studied for my thesis. It's you know you get one line at yeah. most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so yeah, we don't know. The, the only other thing that I could possibly point out is that um, relative age and size 
of the figures in reliefs seems to be a thing. So we've got the husband, who's clearly the largest figure, and mm. Epictetus is the next largest. And yeah. they're, they're nearly the same height, but he's proportionally larger. Yeah. And then we've got the son, and he's proportionally larger, again, compared to the daughter. That's true. So yeah. you can look at the age in terms of an order, Yeah. but you probably can't gather much more. Yeah. Um, the only other thing that I would say is that sometimes you have deceased children dressed in adult costume. Right. And that can sort of be more of a nod to the life that the child would have led had they survived. So yeah. they may have still died as an infant. Oh, that's sad. So it's, yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, yeah. 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 This is a, a really tragic example, I think. I mean, mm. parents mourning children, it's more common in the ancient world than it is today, mm. but it's not any less of a grief, yeah, I don't think. And exactly. to lose two, I mean, that's... It's just doubling Plus your the husband. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the husband. I mean, I kind of feel like this must have been like an illness or something that swept through the family, yeah. you know. And, yeah. But I'm also interested mm-hmm. in this idea that she's had the choice to represent herself in any way possible. Mm. And instead of going for a divine aspect for herself, mm. she's resisted that and held yeah. on to a more earthly representation. Yeah. Something that's grounded in the mm. social structure of where she is. Mm. Exactly. And that's what I think makes this monument unique because we have a lot of stock produced grave monuments from this time and mm. from Greece and Macedonia, you know, the, the, the stone mason or the craftsperson would sort of make a whole pile and you go to the shop and say, yeah, that one sort of works. Like I'll have that one. Yeah, <laughs> whereas, yeah. whereas this one, the, the deification of two uh, figures and the mortal representation of the other two shows that it's individually produced without a doubt. Mm. Um, and because Epictetus is set it up and outlived her family, she's the one commemorating it and therefore probably decided how everybody would look. Would you say this costs yeah. a fair chunk of change? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah figure monuments were you know, expensive. Yeah. She's gone in there and the, the guy's like, well, can I interest you in any of these? And she's like, I want something a bit more bespoke. And then she, <laughs> <laughs> she describes it to him and he's like, oh, look, I don't know. Um, <laughs> she's like, my whole family! <laughs> my darling children! Yeah, she like, played the female card and got, yeah. like, the sale price. And he's like, alright, I'll do my best. I can't yeah. guarantee that the small Hercules will work out, but I'll try. Yeah, but and you, you know, surely you want your daughter, good. like, you know, looking seductively at the You know audience? she's going to be, like, totally nude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not even semi-nude. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think I think that the end result, like, 10 out of 10 for effort, because it looks great. Yeah. <laughs> but I, 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 I keep being curious, I think, mm. um, because part of the way that I conceive of this kind of representation, particularly in statuary, is it's all about the projection of the societal self. Totally. And so it's really, really quite strange. I feel like if the daughter had been alive, she would not want to be represented in this way. Probably not. Because this is <laughs> this is kind of going flying in the face of all kinds of things to do with modesty mm. and Repositive, like uh, like your relationship with the gods, mm. and to me well, this is this Aphrodite is, more seems like the more a, I think about yeah, it. Yeah, Aphrodite seems like a very strange choice for a what seems to be. I mean, as you say, a like, child. Ca- it's yeah. hard to say how old she actually was, but yeah. for a child, Aphrodite seems like a like I. 
sure, Artemis, or, you know. It, it is a strange <laughs> choice. I consulted yeah. with a couple of people about it, and they were like, yeah, that's that's a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Grief, hey. <laughs> On this that's podcast, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we only bring you the strangest evidence here. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I did pick this particular uh, relief. To, to put on the title page for my thesis. So nice. just as an inside note to say, this thesis is weird. <laughs> Are you ready, guys? Are you ready? Well, listeners, I hope you're definitely checking out the image that will be on our website to accompany this episode, and, and also on our Instagram. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, which I... And the, what you pointed out about the projection of societal values, I think that that ties in, interestingly, with the other monument that I wanted to chat about to you guys today, Ooh. which I just have to quickly look up. Is this the Italian one? The Italian one, yes, mm. found in Ferra- Ferrara. Oh Ferrara, yeah, 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 which yeah. I always think of Ferraris. Yeah, so I'm like, is that where not. the Ferraris come from? I don't, <laughs> I don't think it is, is it? We'll find out when we <laughs> continue our history of Rome right through <laughs> the never, Renaissance. I never right said up I was to the time they start produ- producing yeah. luxury never vehicles. Never cars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, but I'm willing to like uh, ask our listeners whether they know the answer. I bet somebody does. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the second monument that I just wanted to chat about yeah. is the sarcophagus de- dedicated by a woman called Aurelia Eutychia mm. to herself, mm-hmm. notably, yes. and to her husband, Marcus Aurelius Marino. Now, for Australian listeners, that's not Marino the sheep, it's <laughs> Marino with an M-A-R, <laughs> which is unfortunate, I know, but anyway. But the first part of the name sounds pretty cool. But it turns out that he had a great beard. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did, he did, if you check our pictures. <laughs> Uh, which I'm just going to look up also briefly. My apologies, listeners, because I was disorganised. No, 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 no. So Marcus Aurelius is an interesting starter for a name, you know, given the whole emperor connection and all. Mm, mm. This sounds like somebody who may have found their favour as a citizen underneath his rule. Indeed. Yes, yeah. and, and when we look at the date for this monument, it's um, coming to us from the 250s. Ah, okay, so, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, there's probably no solid connection. <laughs> but, mm. uh, but yeah, as we can see, so from... Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's quite an elaborate sarcophagus. Definitely. Um, it's like a little house. It, it, is, is, it has like little house. roof tiles and yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it does. So, and in terms of these societal expectations, what I wanted to point out in terms of this particular monument is its statuesque features. Yeah. So, statuesque is a, a good word that we use to describe it when relief monuments, so that is something that is not a statue in the round uses the features associated with architecture or portrait statues to make the figures on that relief look like a statue. Yeah. Are you with me? <laughs> yeah, no, I get Okay. You. Well, yeah, because the way that they're, like, standing out from the stone. Yes. Like, yeah. So they, yeah. they are in a portrait mode, they face the front, they yeah. are standing on pedestals, yeah. they are surrounded by columns, and they also stand either side of some temple architecture called an adicula. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Adicula. Yeah, anyway. Um, and then on the roof of the sarcophagus, or the lid, sorry, not the roof, it does look <laughs> like a roof, but anyway, <laughs> roof, lid, same, same difference. Um, we have two portrait busts, so that's again another statuesque feature. And then on the sides, we again have... Ooh, yeah. Um, yeah, the, these pictures are pretty intense. So on the sides, again, we've got this temple architecture, and we've got... The, t- the figures standing on top of podiums and so they really wanted to communicate to the outside world that they should be considered as people who were important enough to receive statues but 
they probably weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and hence the depiction of them on the sarcophagus. Correct. Rather than actual statues. Correct. If I couldn't have this in life, I'm going to have it in death, god damn it. So true. I'm like, I'm like a, a bee stick away from having a statue, guys, but all I can afford is the sarcophagus. <laughs> that's, that's what might say I'm a dicular away. <laughs> yeah. It's completely correct, uh, doctors. So, in, and Peter Stewart has a book called Statues in Roman Society and, and Roman Art and many other books where he describes this in much more scholarly terms than I've just described <laughs> that I should point out um, I'm referencing throughout this discussion. Um, yeah, so we can see that they're represented as statues. And the other thing that we note about the sarcophagus dedicated by Aurelia Eutychia is that in all three representations of herself on the sarcophagus, she does not wear a head covering. Mm, and true. this is important because when we look at the literature, well, the ancient literature that concerns married women, it, all, all the men say that, oh, they habitually went around with their heads covered. And all married citizen women did this. Mm. Well, Aurelia Eutychia did not, guys. And the thing is, on this tomb, sarcophagus, sorry, it's not a tomb, um, <laughs> she's pretty sexy as well. So she pulled, it's a variation oh, of the large hello, I can see time. a belly button. You can see a belly button. <laughs> and, and if I hold my cursor just there, you can sort of see the outline of her breast. Yeah. And this accentuation of the hip is is very important. Well, I must admit, when I was looking at the first image you showed of the side, mm. I kind of got the feeling that she was, dare I say, a slightly older woman. Yeah. Which makes this all the more like, you go, go. Well, she, she is an older woman by yeah. the time this was set up, so she lived with her husband for 43 years before he cocked it. Wow. But in this way, she's... So I have a little theory about this one. So she's representing herself in this very... Um, fecund way to put it nicely. Um, <laughs> yeah, she has a rounded stomach and everything. Yeah, like. she she does, and yeah. she she's making this massive commemoration to husband number one, perhaps in an effort to search for husband number two. <laughs> um, still got it, boys. Still, still got it, and <laughs> but you know it's probably unsuccessful if we <laughs> if we look at it that way. Well, I but. suppose this is this is probably a point to point out that. Um, uh, sarcophagi like this mm. in the Roman world weren't made to just be pushed aside and forgotten about. No. They were set up in places that people were likely to see them. So, so true. And, yeah. and this one was set up in a place called Vergira. Okay. And then moved to Ferrara. Sorry, I have just checked that. Right, right. Um, yeah. And it's still it's still in Ferrara, actually. You can still go and see it at the Palazzo dei Diamanti Ooh. in Italy. Um, but also you can just look at pictures of it along, <laughs> which is incredibly helpful for us Australian historians who travel to Italy every year. Um, but, but yeah, it, it was meant to be displayed and it's decorated on three sides. So you can tell what side is the back and where the wall was supposed to be. And you can tell, um, from the other, from one of the sides, we've got an elaborate gorgon with these two sort of cupid figures doing a little dance and holding some things between them and that and they are represented in this temple facade as well yeah yeah and then on the other lateral side you've got the third representation of Aurelia Eutychia in the dextrarum junctio pose so she's holding the hand of um her husband so presumably this is Aurelia and this is um What's his name? Marino. Marcus. Yeah, Marcus Aurelius <laughs> Marino. Yeah, yeah. There we go. thank you. <laughs> um, so from from this pose, we can certainly tell that this is a married couple that we're looking at. 
And and notably, again, she's not wearing a head covering, mm. um, which is sort of the crux of my and argument. I, I definitely can see that in all representations, she looks in better condition than he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is perhaps not a surprise. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I, I, I am really curious about the attempt to represent herself as, as fertile. Mm. Because she clearly would not be. Well, yeah, yeah, by the time yeah. we get to this sarcophagus being produced, it seems very unlikely that she would still be in that phase of her life. Yes, it's true. Um, and I'm just checking the inscription, and it doesn't say that she had any children. Uh-huh. So you cracked the case, Dr. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Patent pending. <laughs> so in the, in the inscription, uh, and I'll just read it out because it's, you know, I translated it and it was really hard. Yeah. So um, Aurelia Eutychia built this sarcophagus while alive for herself and her husband, Marcus Aurelius Marino, a veteran of Syrian li- lineage, mm. which is notable, mm. at the behest of of the patron, and who, we don't know who this patron is, mm. um, and her most dutiful husband, with whom she lived 43 years, by order of the patron, out of his own funds. So she set it up, but she didn't pay for it. Ah, um, okay. If someone, after the death of both, opens it, they will deposit a thousand sesterces to the tax authorities. You're like, well... Great rubbing. D- yeah, if you rob this, you have to... Be, like, who's going to... Anyway. <laughs> don't know how you were going to police that earlier, but, <laughs> but anyway, so so there it is, and, and this inscription does not tell us whether she had any children so this we don't know for sure but there's a sneaky third player to this whole sarcophagus there is a sneaky third (laughs) player who is unnamed but if Aurelia Eutychia built well I mean she didn't build the sarcophagus she commissioned it it. um then she's she's eluded the name sorry omitted the name of this third patron so we don't know who that is Mm, very the interesting. Yeah, I feel like we got a real mystery because I'm like, well, what a, what would be the, some reasonable candidates? I suppose it could be some relatives from her own line, so brothers perhaps. Yeah, brothers, clients, like clients, friends of her mm. husband. Because a lot of men dedicate things to other men who are not relatives all the time, mm. um, and they do this kind of thing for fame and fortune and community spirit, I guess. Um, but we, women are more likely to set things up for relatives um, or husbands and stuff. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. I must admit, I found it fascinating to look at these couple of examples, and I cannot wait to see this thesis in publication someday. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to touch wood on that one. <laughs> Before we go, I think the final question I'd like to ask, because it's really interesting to you know see um, historians like yourself at work, um, what would you say were the issues of dealing with the kind of evidence that you've been coming across? Ooh. I know that that's a very big question, yeah. but if you could give our listeners some idea of like the challenges you had to overcome to... Yeah, yeah. Uh, two spring to mind. Um, the first challenge being that I am a Roman historian and then I somehow stupidly managed to pick a topic where most of my evidence came from Greece. <laughs> <laughs> Look. That <I'm> chestnut. <laughs> that, that chestnut, where I had to end up learning how to translate... Greek inscriptions, which not that Greek isn't hard, but like the inscriptions, like this whole other level of hard because there's no grammar or syntax that's there to 
point out what's going on to you, but thankfully they are formulaic. <laughs> so once you once you do a couple, you can really get into it. <laughs> Guys, um, I can see a pattern. <laughs> yeah, and I was very lucky to have um, help on some of those from from some very kind scholars um, who devoted their time. Um, and that's really, I think, what I would love to see more of in the academic world. More, mm. more people helping each other out so that we don't all have to know everything. We can, we can have levels of specialty and then collaborate with people. Yes, I could not yeah. agree more, Dr. Yeah. Red. Um, I think the other issue that I came across was uh, being a historian studying in Australia and being a historian of Roman things yes. on the other side of the world, which I'm, I'm sure that you two come into contact with this issue on a Definitely. regular well, basis. Even, even looking at films, you know, Hollywood is not in Australia. No, it's not. <laughs> and I did go to Rome for the study of my thesis. I did stay at the British, the wonderful British school for mm. five weeks, and I did accomplish a lot there, um, and I could have used a lot more time there. Mm. Um, I should, really should have gone to the British school at Athens. <laughs> that would have been smart. <laughs> but, you know, we live and learn. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but even with those challenges, I think that um, it's probably worth giving Macquarie University a plug and saying that the department there is um, exceptionally kind mm. to people who are just trying to do their best. I agree. I mean, I, yeah. I'm a product of that system, as is Dr. G. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I have a lot of time and, and love for Macquarie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think... Just to wrap things up as well, from my perspective, um, I know in conversations that we've had about this that you've mentioned like uh, the color on statuary oh, yeah. and things like that, yeah. and and it's become a bigger and bigger topic that the public is gaining awareness of. Yeah. And I don't know if you've got anything that you'd like to say about it. Um, there's probably one thing that I should point out is that technology is really helping this yeah. whole topic because if you've got one tiny speck or one tiny fleck of paint that remains on an ancient statue, you can work out what the whole thing looked like. Mm. And the, these kinds of, like, I think it's like laser, but it's non-invasive archaeology. Yeah, yeah. And those kinds of projects, like, more theses need to be written on those and more work needs to be done because there's still, like, people are still perpetually pr surprised every time I say, like, oh, but it would have been red. And they go, what? <laughs> All I can see is this marble. <laughs> like, but they look so, they look so finesse. They look so elegant in white. I'm like, yeah, but that's a little bit racist. <laughs> this is the crazy thing. Like when I take, when I, whenever like I tell people that you know, it's because um, you know, there was this period where the people who were finding them were actually like washing, you know, washing the the finds yeah. and getting the paint off like yeah. you know yeah. and so everything was this sort of white and it's funny when again when I show like younger people and my students and that sort of thing what they would have looked like mm. with paint you know given these new reconstructions that are coming mm. out they're always appalled and they're like oh my god it's so tacky I used to think that the classical world was so chic <laughs> yeah and there, there's a few more um reconstructions coming out that that don't use the kind of pop art color spectrum but yes. they're, they're a little bit more Subtle, you know yeah. fresco oriented but but the other thing to mention in terms of color too is that Rome is an exceptionally colorful city yeah and when we imagine these statues in white just dotted around because they were just randomly they were everywhere yeah yeah um and when you picture them in white it doesn't really make a lot of sense but when you imagine that they would have been colored you go oh they would have these statues would have blended like yeah. like there are obviously some that would have stuck out because they were you know towering over you on a plinth of two with meters gold, high with perhaps, gold yeah. and with all of this other fancy stuff yeah. but a lot of the statues would have 
artfully blended into their surroundings and they would have just been part and parcel as a Roman you're walking around and you see oh yeah there's a statue of such and such and you may not even be able to read the dedication but you know who it's for well I I think the other thing is as well we have to remember that the reconstructions are obviously showing us what they would have looked like like day one oh yeah you know (laughs) Rome is also a pretty filthy city yeah like can you imagine a statue of Fulvia or Cornelia or like with just some bird poo on that (laughs) (laughs) doesn't take long no it kind of like dashes the whole elite feminine perspective doesn't it? <laughs> fail or no fail, we all get shot on. <laughs> and it seems to me that that's the kind of like the legacy that you might end up with as a statue as well. Is like yeah. it could be defaced or in yes. various ways. Damnatio memoria yes. was a Ooh, thing. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. not just in that permanent way, but just a smear of shit. You know. <laughs> One day you've got a statue in the forum, the next day you're like, oh, oh well, that's so, unpleasant. Some drunken <laughs> young patricians come by and knock your hand off. Like, yeah, <laughs> who doesn't yeah. like me? Who am I upset yeah. now? Yeah. And, then, and then when you get to the medieval period, you've got statues that have just been knocked over and being repurposed to melt down in lime kilns. You're like, oh, that's, that's so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you end up? <laughs> Sad times. Sad, Sad times, times. indeed. <laughs> anyway. oh, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us today. Um, I have been most fascinated because I'm, a, a, as a someone who focuses mostly on written sources or film, <laughs> statues are something that I'm not particularly familiar with, and I often overlook. Oh, Doctor G, Doctor G has more familiarity because of Vestals, but <laughs> I do slightly. Um, <laughs> but I would say that I'm I'm not an expert in the way that you're an expert. So yeah. thank you so much. Oh, I'm uh, hardly an expert, and thank you so much for the invitation to come <laughs> on your wonderful podcast (laughs) it's been an amazing experience and i yeah i'm truly grateful